Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures. And we're so glad you're tuning in. To Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for tuning into this episode. This is a special episode. Um, for those of you who are regular listeners, I just interviewed David Gushy. Gushy, did I say it right? <laughs> uh, yes couple of months ago on some of his previous books after evangelicalism and a couple of others. But he was saying when I did that, he said, Hey, let's do a follow-up interview on my new book. That's just coming out. Very strong title, defending <laughs> democracy from its Christian enemies. All right. And by the way, David is, uh, Dr. David Gushy distinguished university professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia. We both share strong Southern Baptist backgrounds. He was actually a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I am a graduate of Baylor University and a graduate of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Baylor 79-83, Southwestern 83-87, so, um, and we were contemporaries. I was at Southern, uh, as a student, 84 to 87. So we're exact contemporaries. Yeah. I think we're, did you graduate from high school in 79? 80. Yeah. 80, I was 79. So I'm older than you, dude. All right. <laughs> um, but you know, what's crazy, D David is I don't think I would have had a single professor and this will shock people who are Southern Baptist today. Right. I don't think I had a single professor at Baylor or Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary from 79 to 87 that would have disagreed with anything in this book. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah. And then I wouldn't about, be now, would it? Yeah. But I mean, think about that. Like I, I took all of William Eastep's courses on church history at Southwestern and he you know, as you know, is an Anabaptist historian. Yeah. And that's where I came away with my love for the separation of church and state. So for all the other evangelical things that I got into, and I was a little more charismatic than the Southern Baptists, and that's why I got into the vineyard and all that kind of stuff. I never parted from that idea of the importance of the separation of church and state. So let's start with the, with the backdrop, which I think many, you know, if you think about people who go to college and get educated on church history, you know, what, how many people have bachelor's degrees in America? There is it 40% of the population. I don't think it's that high. Interesting. That, yeah. That's, that's Googleable, but anyway, yeah. I don't, yeah, it's definitely but not a majority. It's yeah. under 40%, I think. And you think who, who out of those 
30 something percent of people who have college degrees got education in church history. Yeah. Not, many. not a lot. So then if you get saved in the evangelical church and your sins are forgiven and you love Jesus, you don't have a lot of context for the history of the church in terms of church state issues. And you're born in America, come to Jesus and you, you, you assume democracy, right? Yep. You don't think you're, your Jesus following separates you from democracy, but we're in a real crisis right now in America. And that actually is, is at stake right now, democracy, which you've pointed out so well. So let's give a quick backdrop of the magisterial reformation, the church state union concept and how destructive maybe that has been in most situations, right? Yeah. And why is church state separation such a huge issue for not only America, but for the world, maybe? Uh, I think you're right that we cannot assume that more than 5% of the U.S. population has this structure in mind, this historical narrative in mind that I'm about to lay out. Um, and so now 5.1% will, because they're going to be listening to this podcast, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, Christianity begins as an offshoot of Judaism and is a minority religion in the Roman empire has no political power and is periodically persecuted unto death. That's where we start. A lot of Christians know that, right? Yeah, definitely. So then you have maybe 300 years of slowly growing Christian population in the Roman Empire, um, periodic persecutions. But then in the early fourth century, the Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity and um, declares toleration of Christianity at last after centuries of persecution. Um, by the end of the fourth century, Christianity is no longer just tolerated, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire, and other religions, like the old pagan religions and so on, are the ones that are being persecuted. Yeah, so I can yeah, put a yeah. pause there. At, yeah. Both at Baylor and Southwestern, I was taught that that was the beginning of the downfall of Christianity. Right. That is, well, <laughs> that is how I was taught as well. And um, it's sometimes called the Constantinian turn or the Constantinian fall uh -huh. as in fall as in like creation fall redemption yeah uh because it's certainly while while the supposed Christianization of the Roman Empire brought um certain benefits for Christians they no longer were being persecuted the church had state support certain practices like the gladiator games and infanticide and so on were finally ended but the church's entanglement with with the state also led to Christian blessing of war and capital punishment and um, for the first time, and the uh, persecution of those deemed to be heretics uh, by the state, uh, and the entanglement of Christianity with state power, which then became the default setting from about, you know, 380 until the the rise of uh, the early modern democracies that I talk about in, in my book, you know, in the 17th and 18th century. So 1500 yep. years, yeah. okay, 1400 years, 1400 years. You, you can develop a habit in 40 days. People say you can develop quite a habit in 1400 years. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so that's a lot of years to develop a habit. 
And the habit was the church and the state are married. Um, maybe some separation of responsibilities, but joint power over societies. Once the Roman Empire went away and you have medieval Europe, you have various political units, but in just about all of them, you had a, you know, you think of a chessboard, right? You have your king and you have your bishop um, and you have your rook and you have your knight and they were all in there together uh, advancing some kind of Christian civilization. And you have a generally a Catholic paradigm where everybody who is born other than the Jewish minority is baptized. So just because you live in the realm, you are a Christian by definition, pretty much. Right. And, and so Christianity, uh, especially dominant forms of Christianity, uh, became used to a great deal of power and a great deal of cultural privilege. But when the Reformation happened, um, beginning with Luther's 95 Theses in 1517, the unity of Christendom, such as it was, of course, there had already been an East-West split in the 11th century, right. but, but the unity of Western Christendom fractured. And um, for, I think it's fair to say that for another 200 plus years, Christian rulers and Christian church authorities attempted to enforce a unity in religion using the power of the state. And those efforts generally involved a lot of uh, imprisonment, torture, and execution. Yeah. And coming out of that, you had dissenting groups, including the Baptists, who I talk about in this book, our forebears, dissenting groups saying, you know, maybe it's not such a good idea for the church and state to be entangled in this way. Right. Maybe Christianity and the state would be better off if they were institutionally separated. Maybe we don't need to declare the country officially Christian. Yeah. And maybe, as I was told um, in my Baptist training, a free church in a free state with separation of church and state is better for both. Yeah. And I still believe that. I but believe part of what the book is about is that a lot of Christians in the U.S. no longer appear to believe that. Right. I'm 100% in agreement with that. Um and the thing is, is, what I, you know, as a teenager, when I'm studying all this and, you know, saved Jesus follower now feel called to be a pastor is I didn't, I never realized that Christians were killing Christians in the reformation until I went to college and seminary and learned that, you know, I didn't realize that Catholics were killing Lutherans and Lutherans were killing, you know, these people and, you know, the church, you know, all yeah. these Christians are killing each other in this union of church and state. And all of the Reformation was primarily magisterial Reformation, which means union of church and state. And if you don't agree with the doctrines of the church of the state that you're born in, then you're a treasonist and can be punishable for treason by not believing the doctrines of the church. Right. I'm reading in a lot of this material right now because I'm, I'm studying um, what happened in uh, 17th century England and Scotland, Ireland, so on, the UK. Um, and yes... When church and state are married in that way, uh, heresy equals treason. Religious nonconformity equals, um, especially if the monarch treats it as such, uh, religious nonconformity, religious dissent equals uh, sedition right. against against the government. Yes. And so sometimes people got executed mainly under the direction of the church because they were heretics. Right. That was that was more 
the older model, more like medieval Europe. Mm -hmm. But then later they were executed at the order of the monarch because they were seditious, because they were challenging the official church state arrangement. The only way Christians got to a support for the kind of democracy that we eventually developed in the U.S. in the late 18th century was because they had learned the lessons of those excesses and of all of that killing in the name of God and country. Yeah. It was Christians who said, no, we should stop doing this. The country would be more stable. Government would do a better job. And the churches would actually be healthier if we stopped doing that. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. But that was a, that was 240 years ago. Yeah. And my Baptist friends, uh, like, and you know, I studied under William E. Step, who was an Anabaptist historian. But if you go back to 1525, when George Blarock, Conrad Grable, and Felix Montz met in, in Zwingli, I mean, under Zwingli, and they decided that believers' baptism was the biblical mode of baptism versus infant baptism. They went out, broke the ice, baptized each other. Two Within two and a half years, all three of those guys were killed for practicing believers' baptism. Right, yeah. That yeah. is the roots of the separation of church sta- state with the Anabaptist tradition. And we, Estep, always still wanted to argue that some of the general Baptists of the separatists in Britain went back to, had bab- Anabaptist influences. Yeah, my teacher, Glenn Stassen, uh, tr- tried to make that argument as well. The The origins of the Baptist movement are kind of murky, but I think it's best to say it's some combination of uh, separatist, uh, separatists in England and Anabaptists, right? So yep. separatist Puritans originally, I think, and Anabaptists, yep. and you and you get you get the in all the confusion of the early 17th century, uh, you get eventually an Anabaptist movement and a Baptist movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the backdrop of really the first amendment in America is. is this like, stop killing each other. Let's give freedom of religion and the importance of the separation of church and state. Yeah. That now, seems to be at th- in threat today. Um, I'm reading a book right now called accidental pluralism. Um, that, <laughs> that tells um tells the story of in more granular detail yeah of how the british colon, uh, colonizers came uh in the 17th century and actually beginning in the late 16th century came to north america and south america and the caribbean and so on um uh in, mainly the spaniards and the portuguese were in south america but the brits were competing for some of these same territories and the monarchs attempted to enforce religious uniformity in the colonies, but through a series of events, they failed. And so you end up with kind of separate separatist Puritanism in New England, eventually the Congregationalists, and you end up with Roger Williams and the Baptists. He was a Baptist for a minute, you know, and then um, you end up with more of an Anglican establishment in Virginia, uh, but you have Catholics in what became Maryland. And and you know you Quakers have some in Pennsylvania Quakers in Pennsylvania uh, Episcopalians yeah. in Georgia, <laughs> right? So so it was it was partly because that uniformity effort was a failure. That when when the revolution, the U.S. American Revolution happened, you had a religiously diverse population, and the Baptists were among those who said the only way not to repeat the mistakes of the past and the only way to be fair 
to all the people who are already living here is to disestablish religion and have a separation between church and state. Not a hostile separation. It's not like the French Revolution where where there was an attack on the church. Right. It was a friendly separation. Right. You do your thing, we'll do ours. Yeah. The government will not establish a religion, nor will it attempt to harass anybody who is attempting to to you know advance their religion. It'd be a free market in religion, and that's what happened. Yep. Um, I think that right now, and I would say our democracy has flourished in part because of that decision. Mm-hmm. Right now, um, it also involved a, it, it involved something conservatives used to say they were for limited government. Government was not allowed to get into that business. Right. Right. Government was not going to tell us what to believe. Uh huh. Um, the freedom to be an atheist. Now, I have a freedom to be a Muslim. I have a freedom to be a Hindu, right. a Buddhist, or whatever. Right. And so my conscience. Right there are a lot of people who, and this is what really what my book is about: conservative Christians who have thought of themselves as a minority or as a majority in the population feel themselves losing power, feel themselves not liking what they're seeing in the broader culture. Uh, in one way or another, reconsidering the founding arrangements of our country. Yes. And I think that's happening. Obviously, you've brought out a lot of other countries, and we'll get to that in a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause on that one because I want to I want to get to some basics. So let's define three things quickly because then I want to – I've got so much more to go through here. But sure. first, first of all, define, d- define three things as quickly as you can. Democracy, Christian nationalism and authoritarian re- reactionary Christianity. First, de- democracy. Um, talk about a thin yeah. liberal democracy versus a more robust democracy based on the studies of Freedom House, which I thought was really intriguing, how they how they rank a slight yeah. scale of, of each country's based on their trajectory of democratic values. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things you, you said earlier on <laughs> that we assumed a lot we assumed that we were in a democracy and democracy was good what you know when we were coming through we're born in america right because we were born in america yeah. right yeah so democracy is what we are and democracy is good now with democracy under threat we actually have to talk about it and yes. think about it so i have a whole chapter i call um defining and defending democracy and or read through what the political scientists say. And I've done a lot of reading in the history of political thought too. Um, So essentially uh, the political scientists say that democracy is, is a, is the rule of the people. Um, So the, the sovereignty belongs to the people of the country, not to a monarch or a dictator or a ruling family. Um, The rule of the people under the rule of law so the people can't just do anything they want um their actions in government are constrained by constitution and by laws so a democracy in the modern sense is the rule of the people rather than a a despot under the rule of law rather than arbitrary mob rule um in and democracy i argue in the book is a is a tradition that has evolved over centuries. Um, You can draw a distinction between direct democracy, like in a town meeting in New England where everybody votes on everything. Like, you know, there's 70 people who live in the town, you get together and you talk about it, that's what you do, right? Um, 
but what we developed here, and the only thing that ever works at any kind of scale is representative democracy, where you elect people to make decisions, and then you have a process for recalling them. Uh, you have elections, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so a representative democracy, um, then the people elect representatives who make the decisions uh, representing the people and can be recalled uh, through, and there's always uh, free and fair elections. So Freedom House says that you can assess the health of a democracy on the basis of whether political rights and civil liberties are being properly honored. And there's a long list of what those look like, and it's described in the book, right? Yes. Um, okay. So that's what a democracy is. Now, there's a lot of conservatives these days all of a sudden saying, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. And I, I assess that argument in the book. I think it's a red herring. I do too. Uh, uh, in the Federalist Papers, uh, Madison, since uh, James Madison basically says, he his only distinction is that in a democracy, all the people just deliberate and vote. And in a, in a republic, you elect representatives. Yeah. And so it's, so totally drastically different from a monarchy yeah that's right both of them are different okay um christian nationalism is uh is a term that is being used coming out of sociology today to describe a right-wing uh american christian or quasi-christian vision of um attempting to create or recreate a christian nation dominated by uh, traditionalist white straight Christian men. So um, I don't Wait, love that. Say, read yeah. John Wayne, Jesus and John Wayne at the same time you read Defending Democracy. I think it. Uh, and then those, you have it there, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so a men should lead, white people should lead, native born people should lead, English speaking native speakers should lead, um, straight people should lead, Christians should lead. Uh, and the idea is that this is what we once were. So it's a backward looking kind of um, vision. And visions I, in America that I'm not sure ever really existed, but. Right, right. But that's, it's. That's true in all these countries that are. Doing that's right. You don't, it doesn't need to have, it doesn't need to have actually existed. You just have to have a dream that it once existed. Yeah, right. 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 And then I prefer I, a term that I created called authoritarian reactionary Christianity to describe that's what I think is going on. Yeah. So distinguish that from Christian nationalism. for Yeah. Us. Um, I think that you might say that authoritarian reactionary Christians often have the goal of that kind of Christian nation that we just named. Right. So but you might say one way to align the two terms is to say that. That kind of Christian nation is the goal, but it is reaction, a, re a negative visceral reaction to everything that has happened in our country since about 1960. Um. That is the jet fuel. Uh, I think I think I like the term reactionary. It's an important term in political philosophy, but it's also really descriptive. Think of all the people we know that if you ask them, do you think the social changes that have happened in our country since 1960 have been good? And if they say, hell no, that, <laughs> that's who we're talking about here. But right. you know what's funny to me, Dave? Like I was a vineyard pastor. It started in the Jesus movement. It was hippies, hippies yeah. who were totally yeah. on board with all the 60s stuff who came to Jesus. And then we had a hippified Jesus, right? Yeah. But then how all those folks turn into 
Christian reactionary folks, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, yeah. come on, um, man. <laughs> well, what they did, I think what the Jesus people movement did for a while was to say, okay, we will we'll pick up a kind of a 60s, early 70s vibe and persona, right? Blonde uh, hair, rock and roll. Right. Jesus. Connect connected to still a pretty traditional vision, right? The religious vision. Conservative but, Christian evangelical uh root system. Yeah, just yeah, but, just right. But yeah. for me, I would have never been a Christian. I would always held tight to separation of church and state all the years I was pastoring the hippie vineyard yeah. Jesus thing. <laughs> so okay, so <laughs> it's it's kind of a blunt description to say opposition to everything everything that has happened since the 60s. But if you specify it, think about it. Um, legalized abortion, birth control, the sexual revolution, uh, the rise in the divorce rate, um, the civil rights movement. Now, now that's a little more difficult, but if people don't want to admit that, but it's there a lot of times. Uh, massive immigration from non-European countries, um, the prayer in schools and other kind of Supreme Court decisions interracial marriage, um, the rise of what was called the drug culture, um, uh, opposition to the Vietnam War, tearing the country apart in the 60s, uh, loss of confidence in American virtue and American government, the decline of Christian influence and in culture, um, a sense of growing secularization, uh, the some of the offerings of the media like music and movies and such being seen as increasingly coarse and grotesque. Right. Okay. So yeah, those are, you've mainly named the negative side. Except right. Or you like out of those things you just named, like civil rights to me is a huge positive yeah. meaning women's rights and you know, the, yeah. and yeah, there's a lot of positive rights issues that came out of that. Um, the positive reading of the 60s yeah. is that overall it amounted to greater justice, greater honoring of equality, greater dignity for more people, um, a greater fulfillment of the true meaning of what this country should be about or was about or says it's about. And also maybe from a Christian perspective, um, greater opportunities for the flourishing of more and more people. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're arguing about how to interpret the 60s in a lot of ways, right? Okay, it's, yeah, 60s and 70s. But then the authoritarian piece of that definition, authoritarian reactionary, is there is a Christian authoritarianism embedded, baked into a lot of our versions of Christianity um, that now I think we can see always sat a little bit uneasily with democracy because democracy is more freewheeling. You don't know, you don't, there's no one person in charge of a democracy. You don't know what the outcome of a democratic deliberation is going to be. You might lose. Um, and so what I think is that the Christian traditionalists that we knew in 1972, they still believed in American democracy and and once the Christian right got organized, they were going to use democratic means to retake their country. That's Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, those guys. That's well, the conservative Southern Baptist takeover. Yeah. Tried to use that, you know, voting in. Yeah, we're going to use presidents year after year after year. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to use the process. But I think that what we see now and Trump has a lot to do with it, but it isn't only him, is people saying, Well, you know what? democracy as it exists in this country is not producing the kinds of results that we want um it gave us 
it gave us gay marriage. It gave us Roe v. Wade. Um, how about this for a, provo a provocation? It gave us Barack Obama. Um, it gave us nearly Hillary Clinton becoming president. So what we need is to fiddle with democracy or perhaps not, not respect the results of elections or perhaps run on the Capitol on January 6th or perhaps change and weaken checks and balances or perhaps just simply install somebody who will give us what we need. This is what I mean by authoritarianism. Yep. Authoritarian, reactionary Christianity. Yeah. So, so empire is terrible except when Christians build the empire. Um, what this I have, is, what, I'm, I'm yeah. playing off the, I'm playing off the, your thought that you just, anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> partly what we have here, charge, then it's okay. <laughs> the right people need to be in charge. Yeah. Our yeah. people. Yeah. And, you know, when I compare this with other countries in the book, what all of these movements have in common is a sense of we have a right to rule because we are the historical rulers of this country and we know what is right and what is wrong and all these other people are straying from what is right and embracing what is wrong they just need to be crushed yeah and we now need we need strong man rulers who will just go ahead and not play nice who will crush these people yeah and thus the appeal of somebody like trump yeah so before we move into um the i'm kind of setting up the beginning part of your book here uh, but then moving into the the back end of it but um the so i don't want to get too deep into this but you know if you think about the bible and democracy it's a sticky wicket right because there's so many even within the biblical text there's different visions for how to govern at the state level, even if we're talking about Israel. I mean, there's a conflict in the Torah about whether it should be a human king or not. Mm -hmm. God should always be king. But if there's a human king, the Torah seems to allow for that, like Deuteronomy 18, but it has to be a Torah obedient king, mm -hmm. so like a benevolent monarchy kind of a thing, right? But then as you, as you have brought out, there are also trends like the messianic vision that we're we're doing advent right now right the coming messiah it's king like it's going to over the king's going to overthrow the impressor you know kind of thing but how there's even two visions there within the text a, a violent and a nonviolent vision and jesus obviously picks up on the nonviolent vision and is uh is building a, a community of resistance against empire through nonviolent means and that's a kingdom that yeah. uh, jesus picked up on and i think you bring that out really well when you highlight at the the end you highlighted some of the things that you thought we could when you're talking about this covenantal vision of democracy you bring out some of the themes in the bible that could support democracy but it's not it's not a unified vision in the bible of democracy right no, it's not simple at all, oh, to, right, do, right. <laughs> to do the biblical work around this issue. Yeah. And I say early in the book that most Christians have received abysmal or no instruction on how to think about these materials. Mm. It also, the biblical materials, yeah. it also helps to make sense of how for many Christians, a kind of a default authoritarianism is in the, is in the Christian DNA, mm -hmm. right? 
I was asked this in a podcast yesterday. Um, if your your vision is of God as a divine monarch, right, who rules by decree, right, <laughs> um, and whose rule is not to be challenged, um, then in essence, your religious vision at its heart is of a authoritarian divine despot, right? Yeah, you know? like an unethical um, one, even it. Right. I mean, right. seriously. How do you get from there to democracy? It is a journey. Yeah. There are biblical materials that are helpful, and I I, I give examples of them in the book, like mm -hmm. the concept of covenant in which God makes a covenant through Moses or through Abraham or whatever, but with a people who choose to cut that covenant with God and and in a sense, in a covenantal understanding, everybody is on level ground. The king, from the king to the lowliest person, all are accountable to the covenant. Nobody's yeah. above the covenant. That's why David could be challenged yeah. by Nathan, right? Um, so there are some resources there. And then the yeah. early churches, um, you see some democratic elements in the early church you know, environment and some, but... But no, I don't think just reading the Bible only you end up with a democratic vision. Yeah, I think you end up with a democratic vision, Bible plus hard lessons learned through tradition and experience. Yeah, I agree with that, and you know, I think a covenant with creation, which you point out, I mean that the image of God was an elite term for for monarchs, right, in the ancient yeah. world, and here you have this Hebrew text, and there's hardly any other ancient text that democratizes the image of God to every yes, that's, being. That's a resource. So I that's think that's one of yeah. the strongest points we can make is a covenant with creation at the beginning where everybody is in the image of God on equal terms. It's not an elitist term. It's a democratic term, both for men and women. That's huge. Um, what I would say is we have to make the most out of every such resource that we have. Yeah. The, the image of God being in all people in one sense, then I, I dealt with this in my book, Sacredness of Life. Mm. Um, I wrote a book on the sacredness of life in 2012. But all people sacred before God has been translated in modern terms to all people having dignity and rights. And then you have you have a biblical basis for a rights, a rights and dignity based kind of uh, dimension of your politics, which is really important in democracy. Yeah. So, yes, there are resources there. Yeah. yeah. So you you take a uh, a fascinating journey through multiple countries, not just America, who are all right now <laughs> uh, facing authoritarian reactionary Christianity. And you literally do a chapter on France, a chapter on Germany, a chapter on Russia, a chapter on Poland, a chapter on Hungary, a chapter on Brazil, which may be the closest counterpart, contemporary counterpart anyway. And all, all of these have some kind of a backdrop, with the exception of the Jewish state that you mentioned. All right. of these states that you've mentioned, the ones I just went through, have some kind of a Christian backdrop, right, in their history. And some of these authoritarian reactionary leaders are then hearkening back to this time when Christianity was dominant, and they're just using that for political means that... And this is happening all over the all over the world right now. Um, 
it's it's crazy. I I had I didn't that was helpful to me. While I was aware of the Jewish state, I was aware of some of the issues that were going on. I never had put it in that context with all of those countries having similar movements, hearkening back to maybe a time when church state union was the apex of their existence. And now they're trying to hearken back to that and use it as a political foible, maybe of some sort, you know, I've been uh, talking to, um, some political scientists in England and in Europe who are, who are tracking Christian far-right movements all over Europe. So in other words, I only gave like four contemporary examples. The France and Germany chapters are, are based on the 19th century and early 20th century. Mm -hmm. But in other words, there's a Christian far-right movement in um, these countries. I'm also being told you can see something similar in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada as well. So it's spreading. Were you persuaded by the idea that you can see a similar paradigm in all of those countries? I was. Did... Okay. Um, I was. And I, I mean, I, like I say, I, a couple of them, I would have, you know, I knew the Russia background with the Russian Orthodox church. I knew how, but I did, I, I wouldn't have strung those all together like that. Like you did. That was insightful to me. And I, I, I can inspire. Thank you. I think the paradigm is, um, you have, you have a heritage of official Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really helps if you have a dominant church, like the Russian Orthodox church in Russia or the Catholic church in Poland. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, in Brazil, you had the Catholic heritage and then lots of evangelicals. So that's why Bolsonaro in Brazil to succeed had to put the Catholics, the Pentecostals and the, and the, and the, uh, evangelicals together to build his coalition. Right. Yeah. And Trump has done something similar here. Yeah. But, you know, even the early Reagan days, I think United, I think Reagan was maybe, and I might be wrong on this, but he could have been the first that united the Catholics with the Protestants around the, around pro-life issue. Don't yeah. you? Yeah. Yes. I think that's when it got started. It took yeah. a little while for the Protestants, the fundamentalists, especially to overcome their anti-Catholic stuff, right. but right. it made common cause. But anyway, in all of these countries, the paradigm is, here is here was our country at its best um a christian state ruled by a partnership between the the political and the church authorities right mm -hmm. and okay so that's your uh your garden of eden and now we've had a fall what what was the fall it was caused by democracy or liberalism or secularism or or the jews or the west or or the liberals, now we would say, some would say the woke, the politically correct. Mm -hmm. um, and some would even say those demonic Democrats, whatever it would be, right? The the enemy. And, and they are corrupting the country and weakening our influence and, um, and ruining us. And so we need to make Hungary great again, make Russia great again, make Poland great again, make Brazil great again by um, restoring a strong authoritarian Christian ruler who will crack some heads and, you know, not worry so much about democratic niceties to get things back in order. And, um, and so of course in Russia, Putin helped to choke whatever democracy was developing there in its, in its cradle. Right. Mm -hmm. And in Hungary, Orban has essentially reversed uh, the democratization of that country. Mm -hmm. uh, in Poland, the hard right, 
Catholic dominated uh, government got voted out just now, but they haven't they haven't formed a new government yet. Bolsonaro barely got voted out in Brazil. And of course, there was a little insurrection effort there afterwards. Right. Mm -hmm. And then Trump has been playing, has played by the same playbook here. And even despite everything, still has a bunch of people with him with the same agenda. Mm -hmm. So the paradigm is real. Um, and probably it'll ring true to you if you are or know people for whom that resonates. Just give us a good, strong Christian leader who will restore traditional values. If democracy is a casualty, well, that's too bad. But, man, I just can't deal with this moral chaos anymore. Yeah. And and I do think there are Christians who probably understand Christian history and actually want a Christian monarchy. Yes, and I, I'm you know? I'm really trying. Which I to don't. Imagine. I don't. I, right. That bothers me. <laughs> but I don't you know, want that. <laughs> what's weird, Fred, is is as I was working on this book and reading this literature, I was reminded that, in one sense, separation of church and state, religious liberty, modern democracy with Christians accepting that you win some and you lose some and you don't have to you don't get to dominate mm -hmm. that is actually a relatively recent development compared to 1400 years of christendom mm -hmm. it is and the paradigm of the grand christian monarch or the christian strongman mm -hmm. is always there to be drawn from it's you know these these elements of tradition never go away mm -hmm. if it happened it happened you can always draw from it can you think of one example in history, since you, you know, you laid out all of these examples where a Christian monarchy actually enhanced the civil rights of every human being in that country? Never works that way. I mean, even Kuiper's vision, you know, am I Abraham Kuiper's vision of, uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just being, being devil's advocate just for a yeah. minute. Cause I don't believe in that, but I was just curious if there's one example of that a Christian monarchy actually enhancing all the civil rights of every human being in a state. Well, because that's not usually the vision. Right. I mean, the vision is of Christian preeminence and Christian religion and Christian morality, as our group understands it, prevailing. And so almost by definition, that would mean that if you're Jewish or Muslim or atheist or secular, yeah. um, or if you're feminist, or pro-choice, or pro-LGBT, mm -hmm. uh, almost by definition, your rights are not going to be enhanced. They are going to be suppressed because the ruling authorities believe that you are wrong. Yeah, You are wrong, and maybe you are tolerated, but you are not to be in charge. Yeah. And I think Jesus picked up on that prophetic vision of the Hebrew prophets who were always critiquing their own kings who who were oppressors, who weren't Torah obedient kings, who once they got the power, they oppressed the poor, they oppressed the marginalized, they oppressed the outsiders, they oppressed, oppressed, oppressed. And so this, this tradition of mishpat, which is social justice, civil rights for all, is something mm -hmm. Jesus picked up on and shouted from the rooftop of his, <laughs> of his little Palestinian perch, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and oh my gosh, that's such a huge tradition in the scriptures of the the voice for the people who have no voices. And and so and one of the atheists or Muslims or LGBTQ people, right? Right. One of the things I try to show in the book is that this majoritarian 
establishmentarian Christian vision. It's only one vision. It's a powerful one. It's been around. Um, it's still out there. But there is another even more justifiable vision. And, you, and you're, you've you been naming some of the strands of it, and we've been naming it like the image of God tradition, um, the covenantal tradition, the prophetic tradition, the justice tradition of the prophets and of Jesus. Jesus from the margins, Jesus representing those who are below, um, Jesus standing up for those who are suppressed and oppressed by the dominant powers. This is this is a um a vision from below. And and that vision from below helped to create like separation of church and state and religious liberty because people who spend a lot of time in jails because the rulers say that your religion is wrong they have a taste of that they know a little bit about what it means to protect people's rights and why rights must be protected i, I i'm gonna jump into your last three chapters now chapter 12 13 14 before i do that though i, <clears throat> I i've come to the conclusion you can't understand the gospel of jesus through the eyes of empire or monarchy. I think you can only understand the heart of Jesus's gospel through the eyes of the oppressed. I believe that that is a that was a fundamental claim of black theology and liberation theology. Um, I think you can see seedlings of it in these dissenting Anabaptists and Baptists and mm -hmm. Quakers and so on in the in the early modern period. Um, but man, how many Christians just would look at that and say socialism liberal mm -hmm. in other words that claim is a great fork in the road claim you either resonate with that claim or you reject it and i think it's two different versions of christianity that come out of either of those paths i think you're right so chapter 12 you draw you're you're trying to bring out from our christian tradition things that enhance a vision for democracy right and Chapter 12, you bring out the Baptist tradition. Chapter 13, you bring out the, the black uh, Christian tradition in America with the black church. And then chapter 14, you you spell out a vision for democratic covenantal vision. So let's let's take a few minutes on each of those. The first, sure. the Baptist tradition. How do Baptists help us understand democracy, David? <laughs> well, we've kind of we've kind of yeah, gotten there. Uh it's I think it's part of the proudest heritage of the of the Baptist movement, which is just over 400 years old now. Um, the um, Let me open the pages to that so I don't miss any of it. Um, the, um, yeah, I talk about Glenn Stassen, uh, who was my teacher and one of the grand leaders of the, of the 20th century Baptist movement. Um, and so I talk about, uh, some of the arguments that Stassen made, and a lot of those arguments were drawn on, um, from the early modern Baptist movement. I mean, I want to find the, um, the exact list. Yes, this is what, this is what I end up saying. The Baptist contribution to early democracy. Baptists rejected authoritarianism both in their congregations and in society. Uh, they rejected state authority over religious belief and instead embraced religious liberty. Um, they rejected um, the free exercise of religion, even of those people whose religion we fundamentally disagree with. 
They rejected arbitrary government power without checks and balances and instead began to propose a vision of human rights enshrined in law. Um, and also, I say, Baptists and other Congregationalists learned to practice democracy in their humble little congregations. Right. I thought that was a fascinating point. And I, I've, I've got a personal... Go for it. That, that, I mean, you've, you've, you basically, with that comment, helped me become a Congregationalist again, David. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Because literally, like when I was 16, got saved out of drugs, I went to a Bab Southern Baptist business meeting you know, congregational rule. Hmm. I saw people acting, I mean, even as a 16 year old, newly follower of Jesus, I'm like, they acted like babies arguing with each other. It was <laughs> pathetic. And I thought, God, if there's a way to do church without doing that, then I'm, I'm going to find that. And of course, Vineyard was more of a, more of an Episcopalian model of church government. If you break it down to congregational yeah. rule, elder rule, and a and like bishop rule, episcopal rule. Vineyard was more of an, a, a bishop rule thing, you know? <laughs> so I started my own church. I picked my own board, you know, that kind of thing. And we didn't vote on much of anything except for the board level and the budgets, buildings and budgets, you know, that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. like, you're just this little vision of congregational rule. Like I'm a disciple of Christ pastor. Now I just got my standing. I just yeah. go through 15 hours of disciple of Christ history to get my new standing with, cause I was ordained Southern Baptist, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, and I, it was like, dang it. I need to be democratic through and through. <laughs> it's like, it's that same thing. It's like, oh, well, if I'm in power, then it's okay. You know, but right. You right. Know, oh, that's still, even if I got a good heart, you still, you still want to, this, this vision of, of democracy needs to, I think, permeate everything we do, including now, you know, it's a fact, and I say it in the book that the majority of church structures I'm aware of in the world are not democratic. Right. Eastern Orthodox churches are not. I mean, they're not democratic. Yeah. Catholic church is not democratic. Right. And uh, most of the Protestant churches have some kind of hierarchical structure. But I'm saying. You might are into a Baptist again, David. Who knows? <laughs> there, there are traditions that have a heritage of democracy. In fact, reading in this like 16th and 17th century stuff about England the kings were worried about these congregationalists because because basically well there was a famous saying i think it was charles the first but it may not have been him said no bishop no king in other words the monarchs understood that the hierarchical structure in religion underwrote the hierarchical structure in the state yeah and that once people started thinking and deliberating stuff out for themselves they might not be wanted to bow before the monarch anymore. They might say, well, why, what makes you the one who has all this authority? Don't right. we get a vote? Don't we get a vote too? Yeah. And that is the genius of democracy. And so I argue that we need places where we practice democracy. I think you're right. I appreciate that really. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. yeah, fascinating. So man, Baptists can help us out, but Baptists have to remember who they are. And they I are. say Southern Baptists, are increasingly less democratic. They're forgotten. They've forgotten that heritage. They're they're, they're more. Yep. I think they've. I think they've turned that corner into the new Calvinists who, who had a vision for benevolent Christian monarchies. Yeah, I think so. And you know, there's all these people competing to be the top presbyter, right, mm -hmm. or the top bishop. And we can name some names, but we won't, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So.
you know, I mean, any any organization. So I'll, I challenge your listeners, any organization where people get together in a room and they deliberate about what to do and they take votes and they respect the results of votes and they still continue to be in community with each other. Um, that's a that's a democratic structure. And it's all we need to remember how to practice democracy so that we don't let it slip away without us even forgetting, without us even knowing what we're missing and what we're losing. And it's not easy. No, it's not easy. Not easy. Because people are people. <laughs> Ten opinions for every nine people, right? You know, um, yeah. sometimes people argue stupidly. Sometimes they argue uncivilly. Yeah. Um, and and if you yeah. get in a congregational rule situation, you could have a person who has never studied any church history, never been to any theology, never doesn't understand the difference between a Methodist, a Baptist, and a and an Assembly of God, per, you know, or a Catholic or, or you know. And then they've got the same vote as somebody who spent a lifetime living in the church, studying the church and history of church and all that kind of stuff. And so it's a tricky, you know what I mean? It's and that's how it is in a, in a public in the political public side arena, right? When I when I vote on November fourth or whatever, I've studied this stuff very closely. Somebody else next to me will vote who maybe doesn't even know who the candidates are and will just randomly pick somebody by their by their name or something. Yeah, and and you just say that this system for all of its flaws is better than the alternatives yep that's what we decided 240 years ago i know i i'm with you thank you for bringing that out let's the the chapter 13 you think there's a, a rich history we can draw from the black tradition in america if you think about all of these slaves coming to america and then adopting the religion of their oppressor right which was which, which was our constitution who was only interpreted originally through the eyes of white men. Right. You know, women couldn't vote, blacks couldn't vote, you know, da, 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 da. And yet these, this black church in America held on to the gospel of Jesus through the eyes of the oppressed. Right. That's, that's a miracle. It the is in fact, it's a miracle. It's not too much to say that the reworking, the, the prophetic dissenting reworking of slaveholder religion into liberationist religion, yes. black no. religion uh, is the most creative theological achievement that happened in North America. That's what I'm calling a miracle. That's a miracle. <laughs> and also the reworking of a white ethnocracy that was a democracy for white people only and the refusal to accept that and to say, no, actually, we're citizens, too. We belong, too. We're humans, too. Uh, and to call on the founding principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all men are created equal, and to say, that that's us. We count. And to fight for democracy for hundreds of years and not give up on it. And also, I argue that a lot of the firepower for that movement for democracy was located in the Black churches, like in the civil rights movement yes and so if anybody is a democrat little d anybody believes in democracy yeah has to study the heroic resistance politics of the black yes. american political tradition yes. thank you thank you oh my god we need that we need that so badly man you know you think about jesus turn the other cheek love your enemies and then that basically gets forgotten or marginalized itself for thousands of years in church history 
And then you have a guy like Gandhi come along and re-envision it as, as a nonviolent resistance. And then King picks that up and Martin refines Luther King it. picks it up and refines it. You're talking about the same strategy that Jesus used against the Roman empire is <laughs> mm -hmm. basically being picked up by the black church in America. Yeah. And so portions of it, portions of it, you know, for sure. I, um, so the story is complicated, but I, I follow black uh, historians and other scholars in saying uh, there is a great democratic resistance, kind of a resistance pro democratic tradition from the perspective of the oppressed and yeah. tremendous victories have been won. But this also sharpens kind of our understanding of what's going on. What if we understand our current situation to be a clash of two visions, the vision of a of a of a reversion back to a kind of a white quasi-democracy? Um, ver in other words, how about we call it confederate democracy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, versus um versus a multiracial pluralistic democracy in which everybody Thank gets a democracy it has yet to be achieved but it's it's the direction we need to be striving yeah okay for chapter 14 democratic covenantal vision yeah what is that um well you you begin to get the language of of covenant what's well, in the bible of course but you begin to get it getting into politics with the puritans in england um and their vision was quasi-democratic but again it's the potential of covenant uh here so the idea that um everybody in a community makes a covenant to act for the well-being of the community. Um, and now the, the original Puritan vision was of a national covenant. Um, and they never quite got what they were looking for, though they had a brief period where they had rule, like with Cromwell. But 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 the idea, okay, so at one level, the church is a covenanted community in which we all agree to serve Jesus as Lord and to advance the well-being of the of the church and the the work of the kingdom of God in covenant with each other, right? That language of church as a covenant community. So I'm starting there. Um, the Puritans helped to bring that idea to North America in the idea of the civil community as a covenant community. And I quote, like the Massachusetts Constitution, which of 17 whatever, which essentially says we are a covenanted community. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then Martin Luther King uh, picked up on this language, and the the idea of covenant has periodically been been retrieved. What if we think of America as a covenantal community, um, in which we all are about not just my rights, but about the well-being of my neighbor and the well-being of the community as a whole, in which we understand there's a certain kind of sacred obligation to the to the country and to one another. Um, uh, and the way we, one way we serve God is by being committed to the flourishing of every one of our neighbors. Mm -hmm. So we care about the quality of the public schools in the next district and not just my district. 
or the next neighborhood, not just my neighborhood. And we care about whether our neighbors have access to health care so they don't die of a preventable disease. Or go in debt because they need treatment. Right. And then and we, they have to do bankruptcy and then they can never get good credit again and all that kind of all of that. And we care about what <laughs> happens in the prisons because we feel a sense of covenant tie even to the imprisoned and those who are out of prison. Right. Um, Martin Luther King uh, talked about we need a new democratic covenant in which everybody is included on equal terms. So I just play with the idea that. That we ought to think about the political community as covenantal. Not that is everybody believing in the same religion, but all Christians and others, hopefully, being committed to a vision of of the well-being of the community as a whole and every one of our neighbors. Mm. Um, I think that has potential. I also talk about everybody who's in positions of authority needs to be aware of their distinctive, you might say, covenant obligations. Mm. Uh, a police officer has a certain set of covenant obligations in relation to everybody that they stop everybody that they talk to everybody that they serve a protect president and serve protect and uh -huh. serve yep that's protect. even that's that's covenant language mm -hmm. that's covenant language yep. uh, the attorney general has certain covenant obligations that other people don't have yes the judge has mm -hmm. certain covenant obligations mm -hmm. the school principal the teacher yeah um i think one way to analyze what has happened in our politics as people have and in our culture as people have lost a sense of covenant and it's all about what's in it for me. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly one of the downsides of, of capitalism in its worst forms, right? Uh, yes. Capitalism is not to... covenantal. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. So I <laughs> think, I think this has potential. Um, we need to, we got to say you got a toolbox a toolbox for de for defending democracy. They've got some pretty good tools in it. Yeah. One of the tools is covenant. Yep. That's what I'm yep. saying. Yep. Yep. I love it. I love it. Um, do you have just a few more minutes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. I'm because, you know, democracy is is threatened in America. When we have a foreign president, I this is my opinion to and I, you know, I, you'd agree with me, tried to commit a coup against the United States of America, you know? Because he lost an election. He didn't want because to leave. He lost an election that he didn't want to accept. And we had a few Republicans in your state. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no, yes. who, who literally saved it. <laughs> and, you know, a couple, you know, like I, I'm thankful for a few strategic Republicans around that uh, helped us out there, you know, saving democracy. I, like I... I, mean, I I don't think it's too much to say that in my state, Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, um, they were acting on the basis of their their covenantal constitutional obligations as state officers, and they refused to bow to pressure. I I think they're heroes in my book, you know. Uh, they are to me too, man. That's yeah. why they won re-election so easily. Yeah. Trump put up people against them in the primaries, and they were stomped because yeah. the— the good folks of Georgia understood that that's who we want. We yeah. want. And so that that's the kind of thing that gives me hope. But but yes, there's a lot of threats to our democracy. And, and the the Trumpist movement has metastasized into an anti-democratic force. I'm sure of it. Yeah. You know, the Constitution, this is we I don't want to dive too deep into this, but, you know, democracy and I think the Constitution itself are under threat. 
and and you know the constitution you know all the debates around strict constitutionalists versus you know progressive constitution you know those kind of things and but in in my view you know we've we've kind of outgrown the constitution in some ways or maybe not outgrown it but lost its bearings because of you think about lobbyists career politicians PAC money, super PAC money, and then now this Christian nationalism, you throw all of that together and how big corporations play into the lobbyist things and the influence that that has, it's, it's, it's a real threat, I think, to democ. I think we're under a real threat and from multiple angles, not just Christian nationalism, uh, but even, even views of, you know, even with how this you know, we've grown to 300 and something million people with a constitution that was conceived with a, with 13 colonies <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And when you really get under the hood, I mean, part of, I mean, I'm reading a lot in this literature. Uh, there are political scientists who say that our constitution is actually not democratic enough, mm. that there are some flaws in it in terms of um, real democratic self-government two of these flaws are related to each other the way uh the electoral college is set up yeah and the way the senate is set up yeah yeah and these were already debated at the time the constitution was written right um uh also rule changes like in the way the senate operates with the filibuster always hanging over the head means that you don't really have majority role in the senate you have you have to have a supermajority to do much of anything. Yeah. So there are there's both constitutional things, and I read a book that said, um, uh, the we have made amending the constitution too difficult, mm. so that, and there hasn't been a, a past amendment in decades and decades. Right. Uh, by making amending the constitution that difficult, we're we're stuck with kind of a brittle document that is unable to be changed, and sometimes you need change. Yeah. But the other thing I would say, the Bible, the Bible functions that way too for people. You know, right. you have this literalist, fundamentalist interpretation, and it becomes brittle, and it it's breaks brittle. a thousand ways. Right. That's right. The other thing is, any any uh, legal and constitutional structure still requires the covenant commitment of everybody involved, especially the politicians, to honor the spirit of the laws. Mm to live into the values of the democracy. Mm. Um, and when you have somebody constantly violating those values, that spirit and those norms, just trampling on them on a regular basis, then no constitution is strong enough to hold on its own if the people are trampling it in that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, man, thank you for your work. Um, I pray that this book would be read far and wide by even our most conservative Christian friends. Um, can I, can I read your final word from your book as a sure, word of yeah. closing? Um, and, uh, and then let you comment from that. And, uh, and I would, I, I want all my Christian friends out there <laughs> to, I, I hope that they would hear, listen, uh, share this book widely encourage people to read it even if you think you're going to disagree with it read it struggle with it argue with it dive into it and um democracy is worth is worth uh throwing our 
our faith and our our uh, support behind, I think, as a uh, living legacy for the world. So the final word, during the Cold War, Reinhard Niebuhr wrote, Reinhold Niebuhr wrote, democracy cannot be final. the final end of life. It is a form of human society, and man is only partly fulfilled in his social relations. Ultimately, each individual faces not society, but God as his judge and redeemer. Democracy is certainly a better form of society than totalitarianism, but many proponents of it share one mistake of, communi- of, of communists, at least. They know of no other dimension of existence except the social one. And then your final paragraph, democracy, while flawed, still appears to be the best available political ordering of human community. It is not the final end of life. That ultimate destiny is eternal communion with God. And yet here on this earth, democracy is still worth our support, even if necessary, by defending democracy from its Christian enemies. Um, I, I like that I landed the plane right there. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we don't absolutize democracy. We don't say it's the only way to organize a human community. Uh, we don't say that human life is only about politics or about government. Um, but we do say it matters a great deal. And um, if you've studied history at all, you've got to go with the track record of democracies over against the track record of authoritarian government to protect human well-being and care about everybody in the community. And it's worth defending. This country used to be a model for democracy around the world. And Christians who are willing to kick that away um, for their goals or their idol, Donald Trump, are making a grave mistake. I'm pleading with my brothers and sisters in the church to reconsider. Yeah. Hey, a great stocking stuffer for all your... It's right in the big stocking up there uh, over the uh, fireplace. That's right. (laughs) For all your friends and relatives who might might struggle with some of these thoughts, you know, anyway. (laughs) Thank you, David. Blessings to you. I'm glad, you know, we, I, I met you at uh, wild goose festival last July and you, I know you don't remember, but you know, I, I, yeah. I, uh, I came up and I think I got you to sign one of your books for me. And, uh, and then we, we've now this is our second podcast. I've, I've only had, I've been doing this for about three years and I've only had a few guests on twice. Uh, so I would love to do another one, one of these days. So thank it's you. It's an honor. It's an honor, Fred. I'll be back at wild goose. Will you be at wild goose this summer? I'm planning on doing it again. Yeah, I'm going to make yeah. it a staple. And I also went to Theology Beer Camp this year. And uh-huh. I think I'll probably make that a staple too. So, uh, Yeah, I'll be back to Wild Goose. In fact, I'll be talking about the book uh, again right in the middle of the election campaign at that point. That'll be July. So yeah. may God help us all. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You know, hey, share this episode with people, really, because – even if it, uh, even if you're in one of those families where you argue over this stuff and then you don't want to talk to each other and that kind of thing, it's worth it to get some democracy and some perspective from the history of democracy and how Christianity can actually support democracy. I think it's a vital contribution to our time right here in America right now. So thanks, David, for all your work. Thank you so much, Fred. I really appreciate it. Writing this book. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Hope to see you next time. 
Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com, sign up for one of our monthly supports, and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I want to encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments. And go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.